Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Thanks for joining us for part two, Bonnie and Clyde, Born to Die, The Final Months. By 1933, Bonnie and Clyde were hardened criminals. He, a killer, having made his choice to die before going back to prison. And she, not a killer, but an accomplice, sworn to stand by Clyde in whatever trouble he got into. And he was constantly in it. Bonnie was an object lesson in the old maxim, you are judged by the company you keep and she lived and died in the company of Clyde Barrow. According to the FBI in the 1930s, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow were the subjects of one of the most spectacular and colorful manhunts the nation had seen up to that time. In part one, we shared the story of their growing up in the slums of Dallas, Texas, the young lives of Clyde and Bonnie, how they met, who they partnered with, their crimes, and how and where they moved, always in an effort to raise money and to avoid the law. Descriptions of what life was like in most of the South and Midwest at that time, with tornado-like dust storms, unemployment, prices on cotton and wheat at pennies a bushel, farms and businesses going bankrupt by the thousands every month, sickness and high infant mortality rates are plentiful. None of this excuses people turning to crime and murder, but it was a big motivator, and prisons were hellholes. Good, some would say but most criminals would kill a cop rather than be apprehended for that reason alone, and very few that went in ever went the straight and narrow when they got out. Clyde did try, to be fair, when he got out of Eastham. He applied for jobs in Dallas, but it was a joke. Even if there were jobs to be had, there were lines of applicants stretching around the block, and now, with a prison record, 
he had no chance. His family reached out and got him a job opportunity in Massachusetts, and he went, but he missed home too badly, and weeks later, the one good opportunity he had slipped from his fingers. We rejoin Clyde in part two of Born to Die in 1933, headed for Minnesota. Good morning, Captain. Good morning, Sean. Do you need another mule skinner out on your new mud line? In 1933, after the failed bank robbery attempt in Luzerne, Indiana, they moved on to Okabina, Minnesota, to try a bank that Clyde and Ralph Fultz had cased months back in March of 1932. They needed money to not only support themselves on the run, but to buy weapons in order that they could break Buck out of Easton Prison, Clyde's alma mater, so to speak, and so Clyde could wreak what revenge he could upon that prison to repay them for what they'd done to him. The thought that had he not turned to crime and gotten caught, he never would have gone to Easton probably never occurred to him because he had lost the ability to reason long before this. On May 19, 1933, one year and four days before Clyde came to his grisly end in Gibsland, Louisiana, two men who were later described as thin, dark-haired, and standing between 5 foot 5 and 5 foot 7 inches, one carrying a BAR, broke into a back window of the Okibina Bank and waited for the tellers to arrive, which they did at 8 a.m. The two thieves jumped out of hiding, apprehending the two tellers, but it turned out to be a busy morning for the bank as six more people entered the building, including two children. The robbers ordered everyone to lie on the floor, then forced assistant cashier Ralph Jones to unlock the safe, from which they took $1,400. While this was taking place, Chief Cashier Sam Fredrickson, from his prone position on the floor, activated a silent alarm that was heard in the hardware store next door. The thieves, unaware that the alarm had been sounded, herded their captives into the basement, told them to stay where they were, and headed back upstairs and toward the back door. Outside, what was described as two young women, one with reddish hair, pulled up in a black Ford B8 sedan, honking the horn. As the robbers jumped into the car, three shots rang out. August Atz, the owner at the hardware store, was firing a thirty-two pistol through the narrow opening of a sliding door at the back of the building, but the shots missed. The woman in the front passenger seat fired a machine gun in Atz's direction, and that missed as well. The car sped off and drove in a six-block arc through the town, spraying the town with machine gun fire, causing school children to dive behind trees. The bullet shattered windows, and as the car sped past the bank, shots twanged into the wall just behind Cashier Fredrickson, just as he was dialing the local telephone exchange for help. The car headed south out of town toward the Iowa border. By 8.15, it was all over, and no one had been hurt. The sheriff of Okibina, Chris Magnuson, was in Jackson, 15 minutes away, when he got the call, and screw border lines, he immediately headed for Iowa to see if he could catch the getaway car, but lost the trail around Spirit Lake. By the time Magnuson got back to Okibina, the Minnesota Bureau of Crime Apprehension, a.k.a. the BCA, had taken control of the case, and their agent William Conley was in charge. The BCA and South Dakota's CID had been following a rash of bank robberies by brothers Tony and Floyd Strain. As the investigation proceeded after the Okabina heist, 
one of the bank robbery witnesses picked out Tony Strange's picture from a collection of mugshots, and Conley, as well as Sheriff Magnuson, shifted the focus of their investigation from the Barrow gang to the Strains and never looked back. Soon they had collected Tony and Floyd, as well as Mildred Strain, Tony's common-law wife, and paraded them in front of a host of witnesses to a number of unsolved bank robberies in the region. No females had been spotted at any of the other bank robbery locations other than Okibina, but for the agents involved, that made no difference, as this was definitely their opportunity to put the strains away, and Mildred had a record. They never caught up with the other woman, who of course was Blanche, but they weren't going to let truth get in the way. Instead, the agents connected an ex-wife of Floyd's, who had no record at all, and pinned the name Belle McLean to her, and she became the second woman spotted in the robbery. Actually, Floyd's ex-wife, who was glad to be rid of him, was living a quiet life with her second husband and family in Minneapolis, and her name was Roder. Tony and Floyd got 10 to 80 years in the state prison at Stillwater. Mildred got 5 to 40 at Stillwater, and Belle got... Away. Everybody on the side of the law was happy, and bank robberies in Minnesota and South Dakota slowed down, but only a little, as it turned out. Today, Okibina's biggest tourist day is Independence Day, where the little town hosts a reenactment of the robbery in front of large crowds. Featuring, you guessed it, Bonnie and Clyde. Trial transcripts show that Mildred could not drive. On the day of the robbery, Detectives, Officers Bledsoe and Smith, were watching Tony's Sioux City residence where Mildred lived, and she was at home, except for an hour when her landlady drove her to shopping downtown in Sioux City. The two officers, years later, admitted to a friend that they knew she was innocent, but were pressured into keeping the truth hidden. After all, eight eyewitnesses testified against the three strains. Look for the word framed in the dictionary, and the picture below it, you might find Mildred Strain's name just above Tony and Floyd's. The bank robberies around Sioux Falls never were committed by the Strain gang because there was no Strain gang. They were all just small-time petty criminals. In the year after the Strains went to the big house, the other regional bank robberies were attributed to three gangs that had been working in that area. The Strains appealed time after time, but no one was listening. Meanwhile, the Barrow gang was staying busy and on the move. Members now included Raymond Hamilton, W.D. Jones, Buck Barrow, and soon Henry Methvin, with accomplices including family members of most and Floyd Hamilton, Raymond's brother, whose taped recordings you heard in part one and will continue here in part two. The gang in the spring of 1933 was desperate and discontented, as described by Blanche Barrow in her account written while imprisoned in the late 1930s as well as by Floyd Hamilton in his accounts. With their new notoriety, Bonnie and Clyde's daily lives became more difficult as they tried to evade discovery. Restaurants and motels became less secure. They resorted to campfire cooking and bathing in cold streams. The unrelieved, round-the-clock proximity among two couples, plus a fifth wheel, young W.D. Jones, in one car, gave rise to vicious bickering. On June 10, 1933, while driving with Jones and Parker near Wellington, Texas, Barrow missed warning signs at a bridge under construction and flipped their car into a dry ravine. Sources disagree on whether there was a gasoline fire 
or if Parker was doused with acid from the car's battery under the floorboards, but it was likely she was doused with battery acid. Several members of the Sam Pritchard family had been sitting on their porch when they heard a speeding car approaching. They watched as the Ford Coupe missed a detour and plummeted off a river embankment where a previous bridge had washed out. Men from the house rushed to the car, pulled out the occupants, and doused the smoking car with river water. The car had missed going in the river, but it was close. The rescuers pulled two men and a woman, later identified as Bonnie Parker, from the car. The two men seized firearms from the wreckage. Alonzo Cartwright, Pritchard's son-in-law, drove into Wellington to get a doctor for Bonnie, who suffered serious burns and was carried to the Pritchard house. Clyde Barrow was skinned up a little, Jack Pritchard said. He remembered hauling Bonnie from the car. She was not a very big girl, but she was all limber and kind of hard to carry, he said. We was afraid she was dying, and they would not tell us who they were, but said, We are as hot as we can be and can't afford to have a doctor. The Pritchards didn't know the couple were outlaws wanted in a series of killings and bank robberies. The Barrow brothers didn't mean anything to me, Sam Pritchard later told his wife. All I knew was they were hurt and needed help, so we just naturally had to help them. Collingsworth County Sheriff George Corey and Police Chief Paul Hardy drove to the Pritchard home. Bonnie Parker lay on the bed, apparently unconscious. Clyde Barrow and Jones heard the two officers in the home. Parker emerged from the bedroom and took their guns. During the excitement, Gladys Cartwright, holding a baby in one arm, reached over to latch a door. One of the desperados, apparently concerned that other officers might be nearby, fired his shotgun through a window, and buckshot ripped through Mrs. Cartwright's right hand. One of the men then shot out the tires on one of the family cars. Before leaving, Clyde Barrow thumbed through a roll of bills and offered to pay, quote, for all the trouble we've been to you. Sam Pritchard replied, No, if a man can't help another man... Things are in pretty bad shape, according to the county's official history. Which was pretty decent of him, considering he had just had his tires shot out. And his mother's hands were full of buckshot. The trio handcuffed the sheriff and the police chief and sped off in the sheriff's car out of Texas and toward the Oklahoma line. Somewhere near Sayre, western Oklahoma, the outlaws tied the officers to a cottonwood tree with barbed wire. The following is an excerpt from the Floyd Hamilton interview that talks about the crash and Bonnie. All right, now, there was rather a tragic automobile wreck in which uh, Bonnie was severely injured. Could you tell us about that? Well, I can give you their version of it. All right. They were running at a high rate of speed up in the Panhandle of Texas and one night, and a bridge was washed out, no lights, and they run off into the riverbed or creek bed or whatever it was there, and the car turned upside down and caught a fire and trapped Bonnie under the car, and farmers living nearby come out and turned the car over and got Bonnie out, but she was burned very badly on one leg. Is that all? One leg was burned? Yes. Or other parts of her body, just the leg? The one, mostly one leg. Her right leg, was that right? Well, I don't remember. You don't Did you ever uh, see her leg while it was oh, still yeah. uh, burned? No, I didn't see what it was burned, but directly before it was healed up, well, back to this, uh, uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, back to this uh, burn that Bonnie uh, suffered. Uh, did she come out of this as a cripple? Yes. Her leg would never straighten out. And why was this? Only kind of because she laid up behind, most of the time she laid up behind the back seat. On, uh, the, on the, the back coupe. seat? Yes. Or the front seat? Well, the, the, front the only seat, seat, the the only seat it was a coupe. They usually rode in coupes at that time. It only had a wider mm-hmm. space behind the back seat. 
and she would sleep up behind the back seat and lay up there because sitting in the car, seat would... But her leg actually was drawn and uh, she, she limped very badly, yes. uh, which made it uh, hard for her to move around. Did Clyde have to help her in and out of buildings or in and out of the car as a result of that? That's right. Tell me, uh, how did they live? Bonnie was in bad shape. It was only thanks to an application of baking soda and salve that stopped the complete burning away of her skin and tissue that kept her from going into shock. She had sustained third-degree burns to her right leg so severe that the muscles contracted and caused the leg to draw up, and Clyde had to carry her out to the police car. Near the end of her life, Bonnie could hardly walk. She either hopped on her good leg or had to be carried by Clyde. The trio then rendezvoused with Blanche and Buck. They hid in a tourist court near Fort Smith, Arkansas, hoping for a few days they could nurse Bonnie's burns. As the days ticked by in the tourist camp, laying low and caring for Bonnie proved expensive. The gang was desperate. Clyde wouldn't leave Bonnie's side, so he sent his brother and Jones in search of cash. Buck and Jones, meanwhile, bungled a local robbery and killed Town Marshal Henry D. Humphrey in Alma, Arkansas. Marshal Humphrey, aged 51, had just taken the job a few months before and was promised $15 a month to protect the 700 citizens of Alma. He had spent most of his life farming, but the new job would help to support his wife and three kids. At 2 a.m. June 22nd, Humphrey patrolled downtown Alma as he did every night. As he passed the commercial bank, two men snatched him, took his pistol and flashlight, and bound his wrists and ankles with wire. They broke into the bank, then used a winch to hoist its 4,000-pound safe onto their truck. The safe contained $3,600. At the time, no one connected the barrel gang with the bank robbery. Those suspicions came later. The robbers threatened to kill Humphrey if he squawked, but left him unharmed. He was soon freed and would meet the barrel gang again within days. I promise you, you'll be impressed with these guys. I'm gonna wait for it won't be long. I'm gonna wait it won't be long. On June 23rd at 5.30 p.m., Buck and Jones robbed the Brown Grocery Store in Fayetteville, Arkansas, taking away $20 and change. They fled for Ford Smith as police spread the word to law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for their Ford sedan. Marshal Humphrey and Red Salyers, Crawford County Deputy Sheriff, were on Highway 71 headed for Fayetteville to investigate the grocery store in Fayetteville that Buck and Jones had just pulled off. Driving with Salyers in Salyers' car, Humphrey was armed with a borrowed 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver. As the marshal and deputy drove out of town, the Ford sedan sped past them in the opposite direction and rear-ended a slower-moving car that had just crested a hill ahead. Humphrey and Salyers heard the crash and turned back. When they reached the scene of the crash, they spotted and recognized the V8 Ford's Kansas license plate. As Marshal Humphrey drew his gun and started to get out of the car, Buck shot him in the chest. Jones fired around from his BAR at Red Allier, who ducked behind his car and fired back with his rifle. Then as Jones fumbled to reload, Salyers dashed toward a nearby farmhouse. Buck's shotgun had jammed, so he ran to Salyers' car, yelling to Jones to get Humphrey's pistol. From the cover of the farmhouse 100 yards away, Salyers took aim with his rifle and managed to hit W.D. Jones, shooting off two of his fingertips, 
before both robbers drove away in Salyer's car. Just a few miles from Fort Smith, the pair hijacked a couple's car at gunpoint, but abandoned the car when they found that the roads to Fort Smith were blocked. On foot, they headed back to the tourist cabin, arriving ten hours after they had left. They joined up with the rest of their gang at the tourist camp and terrorized the area as police searched for them. The gang appeared June 25th at the home of John Rogers near Winslow, Arkansas, and beat his wife with a chain when she refused to give them her car keys. Mrs. Rogers accused them of rape, but later recanted the charge. From his bed in a Fort Smith hospital, Humphrey identified photos of the Barrow brothers as the men who shot him. Other witnesses identified the shooters as members of the Barrow gang. As news of the gunfight spread, so did speculation that the gang was responsible for the Alma bank robbery, but their involvement was never proven. Although a posse searched for days and the Crawford County Sheriff offered a $1,000 reward, the Barrow gang escaped into Oklahoma. Later, they were seen in Texarkana, where they committed a robbery and kidnapping. Humphrey died from his gunshot injuries on June 26, 1933. He had been town marshal less than two months. The city of Alma honored him by erecting a plaque at the city complex building. With the renewed pursuit by the law, they had to flee despite Parker's grave condition. In July of 1933, the gang, now consisting of Clyde, Bonnie, Buck, Blanche, and W.D. Jones, teen killer at large, checked into the Red Crown Tavern and Tourist Court south of Platte City, Missouri, now within the city limits of Kansas City, Missouri. It had been built two years before by Missouri banker and developer Emmett Breen at the junction of U.S. 71 and 71 Bypass, which is now Missouri Route 291. The site of the Red Crown today is a grassy field, having been leveled down for future industrial development, just northeast of the main Kansas City International Airport exit off I-29. The tourist court consisted of two brick cabins joined by garages, and the gang rented both. To the south stood the Red Crown Tavern, a popular restaurant among Missouri Highway Patrolmen. Clyde knew that Bonnie, still suffering from her injuries from the car wreck, needed a few days of rest, and the tourist courted everything they needed. Probably not exactly what you're looking for when you're on vacation. Brick walls resistant to gunfire, multiple paved escape routes, a garage to hide the car, and a nearby restaurant where one of the girls could pick up food to go and bring it back to the rooms. For the past two days, the gang had staged a minor league crime rampage in Fort Dodge, Iowa, stopping at one gas station after another, ransacking the cash registers, and robbing and kidnapping the attendants, shoving them into the back seat. They also broke open the gumball and vending machines, scooping out all the change, a move that would have unexpected consequences for them in the days to come. After three robberies in 15 minutes, the car could only hold so many hostages, so they released them, and with a grand total of $150 of change in their pockets, headed for Kansas City, about four hours distant. Buck had agreed that Bonnie needed rest, but didn't want any part of Kansas City, because less than one month ago, on June 17th, it had been the scene of the Kansas City Massacre, in which four law enforcement officers and a criminal fugitive were killed in a wild shootout at the Union Station Railroad Depot. It occurred as part of the attempt by a gang led by Vernon Miller to free Frank Jelly Nash, a federal prisoner. At the time, Nash was in the custody of several law enforcement officers who were returning him to the U.S. Penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas, from which he had escaped three years earlier. 
Buck's opinion was that the area was brimming with agents and that they should find a more remote spot if they were going to lay up for a while. Tension was running high inside the Ford V8. One note here, Charles Pretty Boy Floyd was identified by the FBI as one of the gunmen involved in the Kansas City Massacre. His end was to come soon, and we'll cover it near the end of our story. We covered Al Capone in our recent story, The Untouchables, at 1001 Heroes. The Barrow Gang, as witnessed in their robberies and Hollywood-style escapes, seemed to go out of their way to draw attention, and the Red Crown incident was no exception. Blanche Barrow registered the party as three guests, but owner Neil Hauser could plainly see five people getting out of the car. He also noted the driver had backed into the garage gangster-style for a quick getaway. Blanche paid for their cabins with coins rather than bills, and repeated that later when buying five dinners and five beers. The next day, Hauser noticed that his guests had taped newspapers over the windows of their cabin. Blanche again paid for five meals with coins. Blanche's outfit, Jodhpur riding breeches, attracted attention. They were not typical attire for women in the area, and eyewitnesses reminiscing 40 years later mentioned them first. In Blanche's memoirs, the audio version of which I will recommend in just a moment, Blanche admitted that at this point she became aware that people were looking at her with suspicion. And no wonder. She was the only one venturing out of a room of five, she was paying with coins, and she was wearing jodhpurs, a rare style in those days in middle America, and one of the men watching her wearing civilian clothes. The next thing proprietor Hauser did was tell Captain William Baxter of the Highway Patrol, a patron of his restaurant, about the group. Blanche went into town on that first full day to Platte City Drugs to purchase bandages, crackers, cheese, and atropine sulfate to treat Bonnie's leg. The druggist, Louis Bernstein, contacted Sheriff Holt Coffee, informing him of the good-looking girl wearing a slinky riding habit, and Coffee put the cabins under surveillance and was in the restaurant later when Blanche was busy buying meals to carry back to the rooms. Coffee had been alerted by Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas law enforcement to watch out for strangers seeking such supplies. The sheriff contacted Captain Baxter, who called for reinforcements from Kansas City, including an armored car. Coffee and Baxter suspected that they were dealing with the Barrel Gang, but they were pitifully ill-equipped to take them on. According to Coffee's 19-year-old son, Clarence, who was on the scene at the Red Crown and talking to the newspapers right after the shootout, and I'm paraphrasing, I will never forget the look on my father's face when he realized who he would be going up against. Coffee had no protective gear, no radios, and no weapons to speak of other than squirrel rifles and a few pistols. Even with Baxter's help, both men knew they were seriously outgunned, so they decided to approach Jackson County Sheriff Tom Bash in Kansas City. Bash reportedly told them, I'm getting pretty damn tired of every hick sheriff in the country coming in here and telling me that they have a bunch of desperados holed up and wanting help. I'm afraid there's nothing I can do for you. But Coffee wasn't taking no for an answer, and when he left, Bash had given him some men, better weapons, bulletproof shields, and an armored car, so to speak. Things started to heat up in the vicinity of the Red Star Motel and Tavern as word started to get around town that there might be a replay of the Kansas City Massacre shootout soon. And one by one, the tavern began to fill up, as well as Slim's Castle Diner across the street. Long cups of coffee were being served, and it was standing room only, and their weather was as hot as Kansas in the summer can get, until the sunset anyway. But nothing had happened, and some people started to thin out, 
as Coffey and Baxter waited with their assembled force of 13 men, six from Platte County, four from Jackson County, and three from the Missouri Highway Patrol. Just after dark, Blanche emerged and walked the short distance from the motel to the tavern to get some more soap and fresh towels. In her diary, she wrote, Noticed everyone in the place was doing a lot of talking. I could hear them and see several of them sitting around a table. But when I walked in, everyone stopped talking. The place was so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. It was just as quiet as a death chamber. I knew something must be wrong. Everyone acted as though I might pull out a machine gun and turn it on them at any minute. As soon as I stepped outside, the talking started again. This is as good a time as any to mention that Blanche did survive this whole ordeal, and she did get out of prison, and she did live long enough to see the 1967 movie Bonnie and Clyde. On April 10th, 1968, at the 40th Academy Award ceremony, Estelle Parsons won the Academy Award for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for her portrayal of Blanche in the film Bonnie and Clyde from 1967. Blanche was unhappy with the film. In an interview with author-historian John Neal Phillips, she said, That movie made me look like a screaming horse's ass. And it was true. The producer did use Blanche to pull out some comedic scenes and took a long license with reality to do it. Blanche told Buck about her feelings upon her return to the room, and he advised her to tell Clyde herself, as Clyde had already ignored his warnings. Clyde told her not to worry about it, and she angrily told him, Okay, if you all get killed, you can't say I didn't warn you. And then she walked out of the room where Clyde, W.D. Jones, and Bonnie were staying. She got even angrier when she realized that Jones had followed her back to her room with Clyde's request for more food. She told Jones at that point to screw himself, and Clyde as well. At 10.30, W.D. Jones crossed the road and ordered five sandwiches at Slim's Castle. Meanwhile, the assault force, well hidden, was watching. By 1 a.m., the Red Crown Tavern had just about emptied out, and Coffee and Baxter made the decision to advance on the cabins. Boiler played shields in hand, preparing for what must have looked like a medieval siege. The armored car was positioned in front of the garage doors, hemming in any attempt at escape. Coffee rapped sharply on the door of Buck and Blanche's cabin, and Blanche responded by calling out that she wasn't dressed, to which Coffee replied, Well, put your trousers on and come out yourself. He then asked where the men were, and she told him, saying it loudly enough so that Clyde could hear it next door. Clyde had heard it all right, as well as Jones and Buck, and they unleashed an immediate hail of BAR gunfire through the windows and doors of both cabins. Coffee's son Clarence, watching the whole thing from a safe vantage point over at the tavern, later said his father, who was a sturdy guy protected by a shield, was pushed back like he'd just been hit by a high-pressure hose. The flying glass and wood chip debris ripped into the officers, but they were able to fall back, taking no casualties, a miracle considering the amount of firepower being directed toward them. They did return fire, but even their 40 caliber Thompson submachine guns were no match for the BARs and their armor-piercing rounds. One BAR slug leaving the cabin penetrated the rear wall of the kitchen in the tavern, 50 yards away, passed through both walls of a stove, and wound up lodged in Clarence Coffee Jr.'s arm. Others penetrated tavern walls at both sides of the place, and several ricocheted off the pavement over at Slim's place. Gunfire was echoing around the quiet county for miles around. Inside their cabin, Clyde and Jones crossed through their internal door to the garage in an effort to get the car loaded and started, 
but when they looked through the garage door, they saw that it was blockaded by a normal-appearing automobile. True, it had supposedly bulletproof windows and an extra boilerplate embedded in its body, but they didn't know that, and they started firing on it with their BARs, not caring, hitting driver George Highfill in both knees as he ducked down, and somehow setting up the car horn, which started clamoring in an uninterrupted wail. The posse interpreted this as a ceasefire signal and started falling back as the armored car started backing away. One headlight shot askew and pointing straight up. The path was now clear for escape, and it suddenly got easier as one over-anxious officer misfired a tear gas rocket toward the officers waiting in the slim castle parking lot across the street. So with the armored car horn blaring and officers cussing the effects of tear gas, Clyde bundled Bonnie and W.D. Jones into the car and pulled out, honking for Blanche and Buck, who had to run the few feet through the open lot to get to it, exposing themselves to heavy fire. One bullet hit Buck, who was firing his B.A.R. from waist level on the run in the temple and exited out his forehead, but he continued to fire in a skyward arc as he was knocked off his feet. 81-pound Blanche and Clyde exited the car grabbing Buck and piling him into the car as Jones laid down cover fire. Clyde gunned the car and roared past Coffee and others and out onto Highway 71 as the posse let loose one final volley of Thompson machine gun fire, shattering the rear window and sending slivers of glass into Blanche's eyes, as well as a bullet fragment that lodged in her forehead at the hairline. As the car disappeared into the night with 18 bullet holes in it, leaving the assault force stunned, one patrolman, L.A. Ellis, tried to gunner the support for a chase, but got no takers. When the smoke and tear gas cleared, the bedeviled lawman started counting heads and found that Coffee had been scratched by friendly fire, his son had taken one in the arm, and Deputy Highfill a wound in each knee. No one else was hit, but they had taken a huge toll on the barrel gang, knowing they had hit Buck, probably mortally, and probably hit someone inside the car during the escape. The cabins yielded six BARs, 47 Colt 45 automatic pistols from Jones' burglary of the Enid, Oklahoma Armory back on July 7th, and the sidearm that Buck and Jones had taken off the body of Marshall Humphrey, who Buck had killed back in Alma, Arkansas, on June 23rd. Things were not going well for the barrel gang as they made their way into rural Iowa, ending up at Dexfield Park, a recently abandoned amusement park, a perfect scene for a Stephen King novel, about 170 miles due north of the Red Crown Motel. For days, the citizens of the area had come across bloody bandages and clothes thrown away or left behind by the gang. And by July 24, 1933, the gang found themselves surrounded by local lawmen and about 100 gaping spectators where a firefight ensued. It was an impressive crowd that had spent the last hours of darkness creeping up to the edges of the field that held the wounded fugitives. Over 100 law officers, National Guardsmen, armed citizens, some with their dates along, as this was rare entertainment for country people in those days, and almost anything counted for entertainment in those empty days before television. I remember doing an episode called The Crash and Crush, where thousands came to the site of a scheduled train wreck and many were wounded by hot flying metal when the engines collided, a shrapnel fest that accounted for one or two deaths. And the folks who had come from miles around had a blast with a bunch of neat souvenirs to bring home. 
Check our archives at 1001storiespodcast.com. That was quite a story. The Crash in Crush, Texas. You gotta love Texas. Meanwhile, back to our story. As the sun rose over the field, someone had an itchy trigger finger, and the onslaught began. Parker, Jones, and Clyde Barrow all received wounds, but were able to escape on foot. But Buck was shot again six more times, and felled, but still alive. Clyde had wisely positioned them in a copse of trees bordering the field with an escape route, which they took on foot, with no choice but to leave Buck and Blanche behind. Jones half-carried, half-dragged Bonnie, while Clyde fought a rear-guard action, holding their pursuers at bay. Bonnie later told her sister that as she and Jones hid in the brush, the firing stopped, and for a long while there was silence. She feared the worst until Clyde appeared from the woods with an empty gun, and the three made it to a nearby farm, where Clyde commandeered the farmer's car, and the three managed to make good on their escape. Blanche was taken into custody and Buck died five days later in King's Daughter's Hospital in Perry, Iowa. Coffee brought Blanche back to Platte City, where she was charged with assault with intent to kill, even though she had not fired a weapon, and sentenced to 10 years in the Missouri State Penitentiary for Women. Her sentence was commuted in 1939, and she was released, at which time she wrote her memoirs before dying in 1988. For the next six weeks, the remaining trio ranged far afield from their usual area of operations west as far as Colorado, north to Minnesota, southeast to Mississippi, keeping a low profile and pulling only small robberies for subsistence. They restocked their arsenal when Barrow and Jones burgled an armory at Platteville, Illinois on August 20th, acquiring three BARs, handguns, and a large quantity of ammunition. By early September, they risked a run to Dallas to see their families for the first time in four months. Jones parted company with them, continuing to Houston, where his mother had moved. He was arrested there, without incident, on November 16th, and returned to Dallas. Little has been said so far about W.D. Jones, but after seeing enough mugshots of him in the process of researching this episode, I can't help but see David Faustino's character, Bud Bundy, in Fox's hugely successful first primetime show, Married with Children. William Daniel W.D. Jones a product of sharecropper parents who, like many others, who were left broke and destitute when post-World War I cotton prices fell to next to nothing, moved to the slums of West Dallas, which consisted of tent cities and shacks with no running water, gas, or electricity, and open sewage, all under the panorama of smokestacks and refineries. Epidemics rampaged the area, one being the deadly Spanish flu, which claimed his father and sister in the same hour, and a brother two nights later. His mother, Tookie, he, and two brothers survived, still living under the Oak Cliff Viaduct, where one year later, five-year-old W.D. first met Clyde Barrow. W.D., at the tender age of 16, and immediately after shooting and killing the grocery store cook, began his run with Clyde and Bonnie on Christmas Eve of 1932, a run which lasted for eight and a half very active months, during which time he killed a number of people without remorse and took a few bullets himself, which Bonnie and Clyde pulled out, 
pouring rubbing alcohol into the cavity to prevent the wounds from becoming infected. Try as you might, don't feel sorry for him by believing he was just an innocent victim of poverty. There were millions of others ravaged by the Depression who didn't turn to crime to solve their problems. And many of you listeners probably have older relatives who would like to tell you their stories from the 30s. Just ask them. There's a world of history out there to be had for the asking. As for W.D. Jones, he served his time and was in jail when Bonnie and Clyde met their end in 1934. He was paroled from Huntsville in 1942 and tried to sign up with the Army in World War II. But when he was x-rayed, it showed he was carrying four buckshot and a bullet in his chest, as well as missing part of a blown-away lung. He lived the rest of his life in Houston, living long enough to see the movie Bonnie and Clyde at a drive-in in 1967 in the company of some local TV reporters who had offered to treat him to the movie in return for a story. Jones said of the movie, It made it all look kind of glamorous, but like I told them teenage boys sitting in the car next to us, Hey, boys, take it from an old man who was there. It was hell. On August 20th, 1974, Jones was killed by an acquaintance at a friend's home who shot him in his sleep. Jones never had good luck at choosing friends. Through the autumn of 1933, Clyde Barrow executed a series of small-time robberies with a series of small-time local accomplices while his family and Parker's attended to her considerable medical needs. On November 22, 1933, they narrowly evaded arrest while trying to hook up with family members near Sowers, Texas. Their hometown sheriff, Dallas Smoot Schmidt, and his squad, deputies Bob Alcorn and Ted Hinton, who, as you remember, knew Bonnie from her waitressing days in Dallas, all lay in wait nearby. As Barrow drove up, he sensed a trap and drove past his family's car, at which point Schmidt and his deputies stood up and opened fire with machine guns and a BAR. The family members in the crossfire were not hit, but a BAR bullet passed through the car, striking the legs of both Barrow and Parker. They escaped that night. Their clock now was running short. The following week, on November 28, 1933, a Dallas grand jury delivered a murder indictment against Parker and Barrow, for the January 1933 killing of Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis. It was Parker's first warrant for murder. On January 16, 1934, Barrow orchestrated the escape of Raymond Hamilton, Henry Methvin, and several others in the infamous Eastham Breakout of 1934. The brazen raid generated negative publicity for Texas, and Barrow seemed to have achieved what historian Phillips described as his overriding goal, revenge on the Texas Department of Corrections. Raymond Hamilton's term at Eastham was as bad as Clyde's had been earlier. Eastham Prison Farm was renowned for its corruption and brutality, and it was known nationwide as a place you never wanted to be found in. The food was trash, the daily work was crippling, discipline was brutal, and many of the guards looked at cruelty as a perk of the job. Ray was a friend of Clyde's, and Clyde knew Ray to be a gifted criminal whose armed robberies netted him more money than Clyde was ever capable of getting. So, with an eye on getting Ray out and creating whatever mayhem against Eastham he could, Clyde undertook the raid. Ray helped from the inside, making arrangements through a former inmate, Jimmy Mullins, to have guns delivered, a job which Ray's brother Floyd, if you listen to his story, was able to do 
within sight of the guards and the dogs within the perimeter. Raymond had concocted an escape plan. One day we were down visiting Raymond, and Raymond had a Montreal ring that he'd made in prison, and he showed me this ring, and he told me that a man would be up to my house pretty soon wearing that ring. If he was, he was all right. While we was talking, see, they is in a little room at the end of a bunkhouse, and they had benches all the way around. And when we'd go in there and talk, we'd sit out on the bench, and this guard had a chair, and he'd come over and put his feet right in between us. And he'd want us to talk loud enough he could hear us. Well, we couldn't say anything, we couldn't do anything. But one day a, a guard come to the door, which is a little ways away, and called him over to the door. Well, while he was gone, Raymond talked real low and told me what he was going to do. And this guard come back, well, he got hostile, you know, about us not talking loud enough where he could hear us. And, oh, he kind of threatened, you know. So I got up and told him, I'm not one of your prisoners. Don't be jumping on me. I'll talk the way I want to. And so he kind of got hostile to Raymond, and later on, next time we visit Raymond, Raymond's kind of beat up a little bit. But later on, this Mullins come to my door and showed me that ring, told me that he was a man just released from prison that day. And he told me Raymond's plans to plant some guns down next to the building under a little old bridge, a drain ditch bridge close to a wood pile, a lot of chips. And then they wanted me to leave a car or be in a car down in the woods with some guns. And I told us, boy, I didn't have any guns. I didn't have no car on my own. I wouldn't leave it down there. But I said, tomorrow night I have a meet with Bonnie and Clyde, and I'll see if they will take my place. So the next night, we went out and met Bonnie and Clyde. Clyde didn't much want to have anything to do with it because he had served time on that farm, and he said it's too dangerous. It's about 50 or 75 feet from the building, and he wouldn't go up there at all, and he didn't want to have anything to do with any rest of it. And Bonnie then, she was real happy about it. She clapped her hands and said, Boy, that'd be good. We'll get Raymond out. says, We won't go hungry anymore. says, He'll really make the money. And so she kept kind of prodding him until he finally agreed to go down and run the roads and look the place over and see. And he said, uh, Mullins, go down there with him. And this was on Friday. I met him down close to Corsicana, this side of Corsicana, on Saturday. And uh, Clyde told me he would go through with everything but planting the guns. He says, I won't go down there close to that building. Of course, I can't admit that I went down and put the guns, but I'll say arrangement was made to plant the guns, put them in, and they was close enough to building that you could see three-tier bunks and and you could recognize men uh, walking back and forth there. Mullins recognized some of his friends because he was just out a few days. And there was a guard about less than 100 yards sitting in a tower reading a magazine, and the bloodhound dog pen was just about 30 feet from where it was, and they was just tearing the building up, and this guard never looked up. And the guns was planted, and then they went back and went got to Clyde. And then I come back and picked up my car and come up here and picked Mildred up. And we went back on that Sunday and visited Raymond. And then's when I told him that everything was set up and the guns was where he wanted them and, and that not me but Clyde and Bonnie would be waiting on him. Clyde and Bonnie are supposed to be sitting down in the woods waiting on him. Well, when they went down in the woods got down to the, where they were clearing timber. Raymond jumped squads. See, the squad of men, each so many men with a man on a horse with a shotgun and a six-shooter, over so many men. 
that he kept in a certain area and watched them. Then there was a, what they call a high rider who set a way off with a high-powered rifle, and he had a bunch of bloodhound dogs, and he had an inmate to take care of the dogs. And in case somebody run out of one of these squads, he was free to shoot him at a long distance or chase him down on this horse, and they called him a high rider. But when Raymond jumped squad, he jumped squad from where he was over into the one that Joe Palmer went. The other fellow would had another one of the guns. See, he had two forty-five automatics. They jump squads that way to make this guard call this high rider over where he'd hold his guns while he'd get out and whip Raymond and make him get back over in the other squad. And so when this high rider rode up, Joe ran over and caught his bridle reins of his horse and throwed down on him, told him to put up his hand. Well, he didn't. He had this rifle downside him, and he raised it up a little bit and, and hit Joe right just to skin his head, kind of parted his hair with that bullet. But when he did that, Joe opened up on him, you know, and killed him, shot him off the horse. Of course, didn't kill him right then. He lived a day or two, I think. But Raymond shot this other guard in the leg. The magazine, the clip in his forty-five, you know, had a little button on it, had uh, released, and when he pulled his gun up, the magazine fell out. So he only shot one one shot. So, And, of course, all the rest of the guards fell off of their horses or took off across the field and left the men. And uh, when Clyde and them heard the shooting... They were out of sight down in the woods. But when they heard the shooting, they got out of the car and shot up through the top of the... And I asked Clyde what he'd done that for. He said, well, I said, just let them know that somebody was down there, you know, that they wouldn't run them down in the woods and kill them. And so they come down to the car. Well, supposed to be the only two that left. Well, there was two more boys joined them. Then one boy out through the woods. Well, there was five actually took off, but they caught French out in the woods later on. Closed-in car. Joe Palmer had his bleeding pretty bad, so they set him in the front seat, me and Clyde and uh, James Mullins. They were sitting in the front seat. Raymond, Hilton, Bybee, and Henry Medford got in under the luggage compartment. They closed the door down, and they went on country roads all the way across the country to Hillsborough, Texas. Out the edge of Hillsborough, Clyde stopped to fill up his tank, and the attendant says, Do you hear about the prison break? And said, Clyde Barron Bonnie just liberated Raymond. He said, he did? He said, yes. Yeah. Bonnie and Clyde went right in the dining room while they was eating breakfast and took Raymond, shot two guards, said one of them they wasn't expecting to live. And Clyde said, yeah, you don't say. You know, and he's talking to Clyde there, and there's him prisoners, they're ex-prisoners on the back end. On January 13, 1934, Clyde, Bonnie, and Floyd parked their car up near Hamilton's work party while Hamilton and another inmate, Joe Palmer, murdered guard Joel Crowson and wounded guard Bozeman. Hamilton, Palmer, and two other inmates, murderers Hilton Bybee and Henry Methvin, boarded the car and escaped. In the days to come, Ray and Clyde pulled off some small robberies, but during this time, Ray had hooked up with a girlfriend named Mary O'Dare, whom Clyde disliked heartily. She had an attitude and felt she was entitled to a piece of anything they took, and soon Ray and Mary went their own way. Ray never liked taking orders from Clyde anyway. Ray was later captured, sentenced to death for his crimes, and placed in the Huntsville Prison Death House, awaiting his final day with old Sparky. He had bragged as he went in that he could get out, and they all laughed. No one had ever escaped from Huntsville. No one ever would. 
On June 22, 1934, a Huntsville lifer named Charles Frazier went to great length to try and bust his best friend Blackie Thompson out of the death house, going so far as to have guns smuggled in and using guards as hostages. Frazier and three inmates forced the guards to open the cells of Thompson, Palmer, and you guessed it, Ray Hamilton. Using another guard as a human shield, they stole an extension ladder from the prison fire engine, mounted the wall, entered a guard tower, ran down the outside steps, and disappeared into downtown Huntsville. Frazier and two others were killed along the way, but Thompson, Palmer, and Hamilton had made it. Ray was eventually recaptured and, like his brother Floyd told us in episode one, was electrocuted just after midnight on May 10, 1935. Getting back to Clyde's raid on Eastham that freed Ray Hamilton, it is remembered that during the jailbreak, escapee Joe Palmer shot prison officer Major Joe Krausen. This attack attracted the full power of the Texas and federal government to the manhunt for Barrow and Parker. As Krausen struggled for life, prison chief Lee Simmons reportedly promised him that all persons involved in the breakout would be hunted down and killed. That vow turned true except for Henry Methvin, whose life was traded for turning Barrow and Parker over to the authorities. The Texas Department of Corrections contacted former Texas Ranger Captain Frank A. Hamer and persuaded him to hunt down the Barrow gang. Though retired, Hamer had retained his commission, which had not yet expired. He accepted the assignment as a Texas Highway Patrol officer, secondarily assigned to the prison system as a special investigator, and given the specific task of taking Bonnie, Clyde, and the Barrel Gang out. Described as tall, burly, and taciturn, Hamer was described as unimpressed by authority and driven by an inflexible adherence to right, or what he thinks is right. For 20 years he had been feared and admired throughout Texas as the walking embodiment of the One Riot, One Ranger ethos. This phrase was coined by Ranger Captain William Bill McDonald, who was sent to Dallas in 1896 to prevent the illegal heavyweight prize fight between Pete Mayer and Bob Fitzsimmons that had been organized by Dan Stewart and patronized by the eccentric hanging judge Roy Bean of Langtree, Texas. According to the story, McDonald's train was met by the mayor, who asked the single ranger where the other lawmen were. McDonald is said to have replied, Hell, ain't I enough? There's only one prize fight. So this was said in Bigelow Payne's 1909 book, Captain Bill McDonald, Texas Ranger. In truth, the fight had been so heavily publicized that nearly every ranger was on hand, including all captains and their superior, Adjutant General Woodford H. Mabry. Many of them were undecided on stopping the fight or attending it, and other famous lawmen, such as Bat Masterson, were also present. The orders of the governor were clear, however, and the bout was stopped. Stewart then tried to reorganize it in El Paso and later in Langtree, but the rangers thwarted his attempts. Finally, the fight took place on the Mexican side of the Rio Grande, near Langtree. The motto appears on the pedestal of the bronze Texas Ranger statue at the Dallas Love Field Airport, contributed in 1961 by Earl Wyatt. Getting back to Ranger Frank Hamer, he had acquired a formidable reputation as a result of several spectacular captures and the shooting of a number of Texas criminals. He was officially credited with 53 kills and suffered 17 wounds, proving himself a hard guy to kill. Although prison boss Simmons always said publicly that Hamer had been his first choice, 
There is evidence he approached two other rangers first, both of whom were reluctant to shoot a woman, and declined. Starting February 10th, Hamer became the constant shadow of Barrow and Parker, living out of his car, just a town or two behind the bandits. Three of Hamer's brothers were also Texas Rangers, and while Brother Harrison was the best shot of the four, Frank was considered the most tenacious. On April 1st, 1934, Easter Sunday, Clyde Barrow and Henry Methvin killed two young highway patrolmen, H.D. Murphy and Edward Bryant Wheeler, at the intersection of Route 114 and Dove Road, near Grapevine, Texas, now South Lake. An eyewitness account, which was later discredited, albeit too late for the newspapers, stated that Barrow and Parker fired the fatal shots. Methvin later admitted he fired the first shot after assuming Barrow wanted the officers killed. After hearing Barrow say, take him, he also said that Parker approached the dying officers intending to help them, not to administer the coup de grace described by a discredited eyewitness, who, later, was proven to have said it, hoping to get a reward. Barrow joined in, firing at Patrolman Murphy. Clyde Barrow did join the firefight, firing at Patrolman Murphy. Most likely, Parker was asleep in the back seat when Methvin started shooting and took no part in the assault. But thanks to that witness, the blame and a murder charge went to Bonnie Parker. In the spring of 1934, the grapevine killings were recounted in exaggerated detail, affecting public perception. All four Dallas Daily Papers seized on the story told by that eyewitness, a farmer who claimed to have seen Parker laugh at the way Patrolman Murphy's head bounced like a rubber ball on the ground as she shot him. The stories claimed that police found a cigar butt with tiny teeth marks, supposedly Parker's. Several days later, Murphy's fiance wore her intended wedding dress to his funeral, sparking photos and newspaper coverage. The eyewitness's ever-changing story was soon discredited, but the massive negative publicity against Parker in particular increased the public clamor for extermination of the survivors of the Barrow Gang. Truth is, it's hard to get good press when you've got a two-year streak of killings behind you. The outcry also galvanized the authorities into action. Highway Patrol boss L.G. Fairs immediately offered a $1,000 reward for the dead bodies of the Grapevine Slayers. Not their capture, just the bodies. Texas Governor Ferguson added another $500 reward for each of the two alleged killers, which meant for the first time there was a specific price on Bonnie's head, since she was so widely believed to have shot H.D. Murphy. Public hostility increased five days later when Barrow and Methvin killed 60-year-old Constable William Cal Campbell, a widower single father near Commerce, Oklahoma. They kidnapped Commerce Police Chief Percy Boyd, drove around with him, crossing the state line into Kansas, and let him go, giving him a clean shirt, a few dollars, and a request from Parker to tell the world she did not smoke cigars. Boyd identified both Barrow and Parker to authorities, but he never learned Methvin's name. The resultant arrest warrant for the Campbell murder specified Clyde Barrow, Bonnie Parker, and John Doe. Historian Knight writes, For the first time, Bonnie was seen as a killer, actually pulling the trigger, just like Clyde. Whatever chance she had for clemency had just been reduced. The Dallas Journal ran a cartoon on its editorial page showing the Texas electric chair empty, but with a sign on it saying, Reserved. And below that, for Clyde and Bonnie. The posse that finally caught up with Bonnie and Clyde was led by Hamer, 
who had begun tracking the pair on February 12, 1934. He studied the gang's movements and found they swung in a circle skirting the edges of five Midwestern states, exploiting the state line rule that prevented officers from one jurisdiction from pursuing a fugitive into another. Barrow was a master of that pre-FBI rule, but consistent in his movements. So the experienced Hamer charted his path and predicted where he would go. The gang's itinerary centered on family visits, and they were due to see Methvin's family in Louisiana. On May 21, 1934, the four posse members from Texas were in Shreveport when they learned that Barrow and Parker were to go to Bienville Parish that evening with Methvin. Barrow had designated the residence of Methvin's parents as a rendezvous in case they were separated, and Methvin did get separated from the pair in Shreveport. The full posse, consisting of Captain Hamer, Dallas County Sheriff's deputies Alcorn and Ted Hinton, both of whom knew Barrow and Parker by sight, former Texas Ranger Manny Galt, Banville Parish Sheriff Henderson Jordan, and his deputy Prentice Oakley, set up an ambush at the rendezvous point along the Louisiana State Highway 154 South, south of Gibsland, towards Sales. Hinton recounted that their group was in place by 9 p.m. on the 21st, and waited through the whole next day, May 22, 1934, with no sign of the outlaw couple. Other accounts said the officers set up on the evening of the 22nd. At approximately 9.15 a.m. on May 23rd, the posse, concealed in the bushes and almost ready to concede defeat, heard Barrow's stolen Ford V8 approaching at a high speed. The posse's official report had Barrow stopping to speak with Methven's father, who had been planted there with his truck that morning to distract Barrow and force him into the lane closer to the posse. The lawmen opened fire, killing Barrow and Parker while shooting a combined total of about 130 rounds. Oakley fired first, probably before any order to do so. Barrow was killed instantly by Oakley's initial headshot, but Hinton reported hearing Parker scream as she realized Barrow was dead before the shooting at her fully began. The officers emptied all their arms at the car. Any one of the many wounds suffered by Bonnie and Clyde would have been fatal. According to statements made by Ted Hinton and Bob Alcorn, quote, Each of us six officers had a shotgun and an automatic rifle and pistols. We opened fire with the automatic rifles. They were emptied before the car got even with us. Then we used shotguns. There was smoke coming from the car, and it looked like it was on fire. After shooting the shotguns, we emptied the pistols at the car, which had passed us and ran into a ditch about 50 yards on down the road. It almost turned over. We kept shooting at the car even after it stopped. We weren't taking any chances. End quote. Researchers have said Bonnie and Clyde were shot more than 50 times each. Others claim closer to 25 wounds per corpse, or 50 total. Officially, Parish Coroner Dr. J. L. Wade's 1934 report listed 17 separate entrance wounds on Barrow's body and 26 on Parker's, including several headshots on each, and one that had snapped Barrow's spinal column. Undertaker C.F. Boots Bailey had difficulty embalming the bodies because of all the bullet holes. The temporarily deafened officers inspected the vehicle and discovered an arsenal of weapons, including stolen automatic rifles, sawed-off semi-automatic shotguns, assorted handguns, and several thousand rounds of ammunition along with 15 sets of license plates from various states. 
Words of the ambush quickly got around when Hamer, Jordan, Oakley, and Hinton drove into town to telephone their respective bosses of the jostling, curious throng. One woman cut off bloody locks of Parker's hair and pieces from her dress. A crowd soon gathered at the ambush spot, where Galt and Acorn were left to guard the bodies, but were quickly losing control. Hinton returned to find a man trying to cut off Barrow's trigger finger and was sickened by what was occurring. Arriving at the scene, the coroner said he saw the following. Nearly everyone had begun collecting souvenirs such as shell casings, slivers of glass from the shattered car windows, and bloody pieces of clothing from the garments of Bonnie and Clyde. One eager man had opened his pocket knife and was reaching into the car to cut off Clyde's left ear. The coroner enlisted Hamer for help in controlling the circus-like atmosphere and got people away from the car. The Ford, with the bodies, was towed to the Conger Furniture Store and Funeral Parlor in downtown Arcadia. Preliminary embalming was done by Bailey in a small preparation room in back of the furniture store. It was common for furniture and undertaker businesses to be joined back in those days. The northwest Louisiana town was estimated to swell in population from 2,000 to 12,000 within hours, with the curious throngs arriving by train, horseback, buggy, and even plane. Beer, which normally sold for 15 cents a bottle, jumped to 25 cents. Ham sandwiches were quickly sold out. After identifying his son's body, Henry Barrow sat in a rocking chair in the furniture section and wept. As for the car, amazingly, the engine still ran, despite the battering the machine took in the ambush. We placed the actual video of the car and Bonnie and Clyde inside in the show notes. And the car just wasn't done. It took on a life of its own. So now, if you're going to finish the story, get back up on that Louisiana highway and head west for Prim, Nevada. The Bonnie and Clyde death car has been a long-time attraction in Prim after traveling a good part of the U.S. as an attraction. The car's story begins in Topeka, Kansas in the spring of 1934 when Ruth Warren, the wife of a local roofing contractor, purchased a brand-new Ford four-door deluxe sedan. The car came with a large 85-horsepower V8 engine with a few optional upgrades, such as bumper guards, a steel cover for the spare tire on the back side, safety glass windows, which explains why the windows held up fairly well to the gunfire it was destined to sustain, and an absolutely beautiful chrome greyhound hood ornament. 1934 was the last year this feature was offered by Ford. The Warrens got it at the low price of $835, which, when accounting for inflation, would have equated to about $14,900 today. Unfortunately, Ruth would not enjoy the new car for long. It was stolen on April 29th from their driveway and taken on a long drive around the Midwest by Clyde Barrow and Bonnie. The duo drove the Ford about 2,500 miles before this joyride ended. After the dust had settled, Ruth Warren went to reclaim her stolen car, but she was in for a surprise. The local sheriff refused to give it to her unless she paid him $15,000. The Warrens got a lawyer and a legal battle erupted. Ruth won and finally got the car back. She drove it to Shreveport, Louisiana, where it was transported by truck back to her home. It sat in their driveway until they leased it out to be displayed at the Topeka Fairgrounds. After a short time, the car was leased to Charles Stanley's Traveling Carnival as a sideshow attraction and, allegedly, made a brief appearance in the 1945 movie Killers All. Ruth eventually sold the death car to Stanley for $3,500. In 1960, Stanley retired and sold the car to Ted Toddy for $14,500. The 
the car was placed in a warehouse and more or less forgotten about for the next decade. Finally, in 1971, the death car went back on the public display at the Royal American Shows. It again made the rounds of various auto shows. By 1977, Toddy had the car authenticated as the true Bonnie and Clyde death car because by that time, there were a good number of fakes claiming to be the real car, and many of them are still on display and are quite convincing. A federal judge ruled definitely that the Toddy's car was the real car from the fatal ambush. The Bonnie and Clyde death car eventually made its way to Nevada, where Peter Simon II, the son of Pop Simon, bought the car at auction for $175,000 and put it on display at his casino, Pop's Oasis, in Gene, Nevada. When Pop's Oasis closed down in 1987, Simon sold the death car to the owners of Whiskey Pete's Casino in nearby Prim, Nevada. However, it did not go on display immediately. As a publicity stunt, the car was raced in the 1987 Interstate Batteries Great Race. Besides some mechanical repairs to get the car running again, the windshield had to be temporarily replaced to meet safety standards. By 1988, the infamous Bonnie and Clyde death car went on display in Whiskey Pete's and has more or less remained there since. Of course, it did move across the freeway to the Prim Valley Resort for a few years in the early 2000s and has gone on tour a few times over the years as well. But in the end, it now sits in the lobby of Whiskey Pete's once again. If you're finding it in a different area, please let us know at facebook.com forward slash 1001 heroes. We'd love to hear about it. The current display features numerous artifacts of Bonnie and Clyde, including the bloodstained shirt Clyde wore the day he died, although the bloodstains have faded a great deal. The display is free of charge and definitely worth a stop if you haven't seen it before. Whiskey Pete's Casino is located at 100 West Prim Boulevard, Prim, Nevada, and is on the ground floor just to the right as you enter through the main doors. Is the car haunted? We have no idea. Just ask around when you get there. They'll be glad to tell you. As to some of the secondary characters and what happened to them, a lot of people felt that Henry Methvin had ratted out Bonnie and Clyde in return for a softer sentence. And he did receive a pardon from Texas, but it didn't help him in the long run. In Oklahoma, he was convicted of the 1934 murder of Constable Campbell at Commerce. He was paroled in 1942 and killed by a train in 1948. It was said that he fell asleep, drunk, on the tracks, but there were rumors that he had been pushed by parties seeking revenge for his betrayal of Clyde Barrow. His father, Ivy, had been killed in 1946 by a hit-and-run driver, and here, too, there was talk of foul play. In the years after the ambush, Prentice Oakley, who all six posse men agreed fired the first shots, was reported to have been troubled by his actions. He often admitted to his friends that he had fired prematurely, and he was the only posse member to express regret publicly. He would go on to succeed Henderson Jordan as sheriff of Bienville Parish in 1940. Frank Hamer returned to a quieter life as a freelance security consultant, a strikebreaker for oil companies, but according to Gwynn, his reputation suffered somewhat after Gibbsland because many people felt he had not given Barrow and Parker a fair chance to surrender. He made headlines again in 1948 when he and Governor Coke Stevenson unsuccessfully challenged Lyndon Johnson's vote total during the election for the U.S. Senate. Hamer died in 1955 at age 71 after several years of poor health. His posse mate Bob Alcorn died on May 23, 1964, exactly 30 years to the day after the Gibbland ambush. 
Hollywood has treated the story of Bonnie and Clyde several times, most notably. Dorothy Provine starred as Bonnie in the film The Bonnie Parker Story in 1958, directed by William Whitney. Arthur Penn directed the best-known version of the tale Bonnie and Clyde in 1967, which starred Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. In 1968, Mel Torme wrote and performed the song A Day in the Life of Bonnie and Clyde, featured on his album of the same name. And my favorite, Merle Haggard, in 1968, recorded The Legend of Bonnie and Clyde. And then a TV film, Bonnie and Clyde, The True Story, in 1992, Tracy Needham played Bonnie, and Clyde was portrayed by Dana Ashbrook. The 1930s marked the fall of the gangster era and the rise of the FBI as a national crime-fighting entity. In Chicago, as told in our recent episode, The Untouchables, an estimated 1,300 gangs had formed by the late 20s, and by 1926, more than 12,000 murders a year were taking place across America. Law enforcement was outgunned, and local police forces did not have the firepower or manpower to deal with bank robbers and bootleggers. Law enforcement was still done on a state-by-state basis, as told in this story, and it wasn't until 1934 that the FBI, now growing under five years of leadership from J. Edgar Hoover, was given full authority to cross all state lines and use every bit of force needed to apprehend criminals. The FBI got busy in the early 1930s consolidating tens of thousands of fingerprint files, modernizing record-keeping and statistics, coordinating with state and local authorities, and setting up a scientific crime lab in 1932, which could provide identification based on forensic evidence and technical information regarding types of gun barrels and slugs, as well as a wide range of other capabilities. Bonnie and Clyde's demise was the beginning of the end for many of the 30s-era gangsters. John Dillinger, a notorious bank robber, was killed on July 22, 1934, just two months after Bonnie and Clyde, by FBI agents acting on a tip from the infamous woman in red, who was actually wearing orange, that she and a friend would be accompanying Dillinger to see a movie playing at one of two theaters, the Biograph or the Metro, in Chicago that evening. It turned out to be the Biograph, and at the end of the movie, a Manhattan melodrama starring Clark Gable, FBI agents got the signal from lead agent Melvin Purvis and cornered Dillinger. Dillinger drew his gun, but went down in a hail of gunfire. Attention was immediately turned to the next public enemy number one, Pretty Boy Floyd, who was wanted for the murder of two policemen and two FBI agents in the Kansas City Massacre, as related in the preceding story. Floyd was cornered by the FBI on an Iowa farm, and depending on which version you believe, he, one, jumped out from behind his car, shooting at the agents, getting hit twice, and dying within 15 minutes. Or, version two, after taking shots in both legs by sharpshooter Chester Smith because they wanted him alive, he was approached by Agent Melvin Purvis and interrogated. When Purvis was done, according to Smith, he ordered Agent Herman Hollis to finish the job. It was October 18, 1934, a rough year for criminals. Then there was Babyface Nelson, a member of Dillinger's gang, who vaulted to the top of the FBI's list when Floyd took his last breath. Nelson was described as a ruthless psychotic who thought nothing of killing lawmen, gunning down three FBI agents in a span of just seven months. He was cornered just outside of Chicago on November 27, 1934, in what has since been called the Battle of Beringer, 
where a short but furious gun battle between FBI agents and Nelson took place, resulting in the deaths of Nelson and federal agents Herman Ed Hollis, who had put the final bullet in Pretty Boy Floyd, and Samuel P. Cowley, who had been there when Dillinger went down. On the morning of November 27th, Babyface Nelson, along with his wife and a friend named John Paul Chase, headed south in a stolen V-8 Ford toward Chicago on U.S. Highway 12, now U.S. 14. Nelson, always keen to spot federal agents, caught sight of a sedan driven in the opposite direction by agents Thomas McDade and William Ryan. The agents and the outlaw simultaneously recognized each other, and after several U-turns by both vehicles, Nelson wound up in pursuit of the agent's car. When Nelson's powerful Ford caught up to the agent's weaker sedan, Nelson and Chase fired at the agents. Ryan and McDade returned fire, sped up, then pulled into a field and awaited Nelson and Chase, who had stopped pursuing. McDade and Ryan were unaware that one of their shots had punctured the water pump of Nelson's Ford. With Nelson's Ford rapidly losing power, a Hudson automobile driven by Herman Hollis and Cowley began pursuing the Ford. With his pursuers attempting to pull alongside, Nelson had Helen Gillis, who was driving, steer into the entrance of Barrington's North Side Park and stop. Hollis and Cowley overshot Nelson's car by over 100 feet and stopped at an angle. Upon exiting the vehicle's passenger door, the agents took cover behind their car. The ensuing shootout was witnessed by more than a dozen people. Nelson ordered Helen Gillis to take cover in a nearby ditch, and he and Chase opened fire on the agents with a Colt Monitor machine rifle and a Thompson submachine gun, respectively. Both Cowley and Hollis returned fire from behind their vehicle. A single 45 slug from Cowley's machine gun struck Nelson in the abdomen, slicing through liver and pancreas before exiting the lower back. Nelson leaned on the Ford's running board, then wordlessly exchanged weapons with Chase and emptied a Thompson drum magazine at the agents. In the din of the gun battle, Chase heard Nelson complain that his Thompson was jamming, and the wounded bank robber swapped it out for a 351 Winchester rifle that had been customized to fire fully automatic. Despite his grievous wound, Nelson moved from behind the car and advanced towards the agents while firing the Winchester. Two of his bullets struck Cowley in the chest and stomach, knocking him over. Buckshot pellets from Hollis's shotgun then struck Nelson in the legs and knocked him down. As Nelson regained his feet, Hollis, possibly already wounded, moved to better cover behind a utility pole. As he drew his service pistol, Hollis was mortally wounded by a round to the head. Nelson staggered over Hollis's body, aimed his smoking rifle at the agent's fallen form for a moment, then limped toward the agent's Hudson. Nelson drove the car over to the disabled Ford. After loading the agent's car with the Ford's guns and supplies, Nelson let Chase get behind the wheel of the agent's car, and the two men and Helen Gillis fled the scene. According to the Cook County coroner, Nelson had been shot a total of nine times. A single and ultimately fatal machine gun slug had struck his abdomen, and eight of Hollis's shotgun pellets had hit his legs. Later news reports inaccurately gave his number of wounds as 17, possibly due to a memorandum released by J. Edgar Hoover, stating 17 wounds to Nelson's body. After telling his wife, I'm done for, Nelson gave directions as Chase drove them to a safe house on Walnut Street in Wilmette. Nelson died in his bed with his wife at his side at 7.30 p.m. that night.
Hollis was pronounced dead soon after arriving at the hospital. At a different hospital, Cowley lived for long enough to confer briefly with Melvin Purvis and have surgery before succumbing to a stomach wound similar to Nelson's. Following a telephone tip from a Chicago telephone company employee, Carl Fiery, who was working on the telephone lines and saw a body on the ground, Nelson's body was discovered wrapped in a Native American pattern blanket by FBI agent Walter Walsh in front of St. Paul's Lutheran Church Cemetery in Skokie and taken to Haven's funeral home. Helen Gillis later stated that she had placed the blanket around Nelson's body because he always hated being cold. Newspapers then reported, based on the questionable wording of an order from J. Edgar Hoover, to find the woman and give her no quarter, that the FBI had issued a death order for Nelson's widow, who wandered the streets of Chicago as a fugitive for several days, described in print as the U.S.'s first female public enemy number one. After surrendering on Thanksgiving Day, Helen Gillis, who had been paroled after capture at Little Bohemia, served a year in prison for harboring her husband. Chase was apprehended later and served a term at Alcatraz. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This podcast is a proud member of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network, and all you have to do to find podcast apps that lead to us is search 1001 Podcast at Google, where you'll find 1001 Heroes and pages on our sister shows like 1001 Classic Short Stories. Our website that leads to all our episodes from all three shows is found at 1001 Stories Podcast. Dot com. You can chime in at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes and Twitter at 1001podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back with another episode in a week. Please remember to share our shows with others. That's how we grow. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>